right, everybody, this is Dr. Blake Williamson from Williamson Eye in Baton Rouge, and we're here talking about upticks in refractive surgery, a look behind the rise. So, you know, a lot of us have, have noticed um, uh, during this pandemic that there has been an uptick in refractive surgical procedures, not just um, cataract refractive, but also LASIK as well. And there's many thoughts about why this is happening. There's many thoughts about how we can continue uh, this boom. Um, and so what I thought we would do is spend some time talking with some experts around the United States to learn a little bit about uh, their experience in this refractive boom during COVID. So we have uh, three amazing panelists and I thought that we would uh, uh, go around the room and just uh, introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about yourself and where you practice. Dagna, you want to start? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Dagny Zhu. I'm the owner of a cataract and refractive practice in Southern California and a partner at Envision Eye Centers. I basically do everything anterior segment, including laser vision correction, ICLs, premium cataract surgery, as well as pterygium excisions and keratoconus treatment. Okay, great. And Marguerite? Hi, I'm Marguerite McDonald. I'm a clinical professor of ophthalmology at NYU in New York and Tulane in New Orleans. And I'm also a cornea specialist with Oakley Vision on Long Island, New York. And you, Mrs. Cruz? Hi, I'm Amy Rodriguez-Cruz, and I am the director of ophthalmic services for UC Health, Sue Ann Sheets Rogers Eye Center. And we are serving the greater part of the Denver metro area with five practices. Wonderful. So we have uh, a good uh, mix of, of folks from around the U.S. and with different experience levels. Uh, people have been practicing for many years uh, and are sort of legends in this business and people who are uh, younger, just getting started, kind of like myself. Um, so I, I hope that we have some good discussion. Um, just to start off with a few uh, statistics that, that I think many would find interesting. According to MarketScope, there's been around 10 million Americans that have had LASIK surgery since it was first approved by the FDA in 1999. And we know that worldwide, uh, globally, the number is much higher, some 30 to 40 million eyes uh, with LASIK since its uh, uh, FDA approval. And based on the latest research, we know that between 96 to 98 percent of patients are satisfied with LASIK. Uh, the global personalized LASIK surgery market is expected to grow from about $2.3 billion in 2019 to almost $5 billion in 2027. So when you hear numbers like that, I think I want to start off with uh, Dr. McDonald. Um, you know, you're one of the pioneers of LASIK. You're someone that I've looked up to for a long time. I remember sitting with you in that cafe in New Orleans when I was applying to med school all those years ago. I'd love to just kind of get your perspective on some of the statistics that I just shared and compared to what you've seen in the past. Well, thank you, Blake. Um, yes, in 1988, after years of research, I had the honor of doing the first laser vision correction procedure in the world. Um, and your numbers are so impressive. There's another number that MarketScope gave me. If you look at worldwide, how many PRKs, LASIK, and SMILE procedures have been done. By the end of 2020, it was 74.5 million. So um, it really uh, tilted the world on its axis when, uh, when this took off and changed the way we all practice ophthalmology. So of course, when this all started, we knew it would help people, but we had no idea that it was going to turn into the juggernaut that it has become. So, um, but now, you know, the 33rd anniversary of the first laser vision correction procedure, March 25th, 1988, was just a few days ago. So 
it's well established. There are lots of patients now whose parents had LASIK. Uh, the boomers had LASIK in large numbers, and now their children, the millennials and Generation Z, or Y or X, <laughs> those kids uh, are very comfortable with it. Mom and dad has had it now for 25 years, 30 years. So um, I am not surprised by the numbers. I'm thrilled to hear them, but not surprised at all. And Dr. Zhu, um, tell us a little bit about uh, refractive surgery in your practice during the pandemic. We know that you're an owner of a very busy practice out in California. You do a tremendous amount of surgery uh, before the pandemic. I, I, I'm guessing like me and, and, and uh, like many surgeons, you probably thought that you'd start doing less LASIK. But tell us about what your experience was and, if, and, and why you might feel uh, some of the causes uh, for the sudden uptick were. Yeah, sure. I always hear about that boom in LASIK that was happening in the 2000s and how those were the glory days. We certainly haven't returned to those levels, but during the pandemic, we actually had better than expected numbers and we were all surprised at how well we bounced back. And actually, that was a record year for my practice in spite of a pandemic and also in spite of me being pregnant and on maternity leave. We actually had a record year. And I think what's interesting is that if you look at ophthalmology overall as a whole, the entire field was down by about 29% when you look at Medicare spending. And so we were actually the hardest hit of all specialties. But being LASIK and refractive surgeons, we're kind of in this bubble because we practice out-of-pocket elective surgery and we actually saw an increase in demand similar to other elective fields like plastic surgery and also with my husband who does orthodontics. More patients were coming in during the pandemic to spend money on ways to improve themselves. And so we sort of saw the opposite effect of what many of our colleagues in the rest of ophthalmology were experiencing. And I think we're we got really lucky for three main reasons. Number one, patients had more disposable income. And it's hard to believe during a pandemic how that could happen, but I think that the fact that a lot of people weren't traveling anymore, they had some money saved because of that, and also the government stimulus checks probably helped a little bit. And so when people have more disposable income, they're looking for ways to improve themselves, not just with remodeling their homes, but also remodeling their vision and their other physical aspects. And I also think in addition to more money, they had more time with the quarantine and all the closures. And so it was a perfect time to go and do LASIK surgery and make sure you had enough time to heal and rest as well. The second reason I think we saw a boom is because of that annoyance with mask use and how it fogs glasses. I definitely treated a lot of professionals and healthcare providers in particular who were coming in in droves because they could no longer tolerate their glasses from fogging during work. And I think the third reason is because people are just afraid of touching their eyes and possibly transmitting the virus. Um, I think when this was going on in the beginning, the AAO actually released some statements saying that you can definitely transmit coronavirus through the mucous membrane of the eyes just by touching your eyes. So I think a lot of people were hesitant to wear their contacts as a result. And even just wearing glasses, you're always fidgeting with your face. And so for all those reasons, patients were coming to us LASIK surgeons for a solution. Yeah, and, and I've had a very similar experience. I mean, my LASIK days, uh, mostly through the, you know, after probably about a month after when we started getting back into practice again, my LASIK days, I'm doing 50 to 60 eyes, um, you know, each LASIK day, which is far more, about 30, 30, almost 40% more 
than when I was doing previously. So it's been a it's been a huge boom. Um, and you know, I, I think the one thing that was not on that list that I find my patients are, are saying is they want to spend money on themselves. You know, they're they're spending things um, uh, that that make them feel better or look better or something that they were you know wanting to do for their home. It, it, they're very much investing in themselves, and I think that there's no better way to do that than LASIK. Um, speaking of investments and, uh, you know, somebody's got to pay for this. So Amy, I'm just wondering, can you please talk about a little bit about the financing of LASIK? And then I'd love to hear from Dr. McDonald and Dr. Zhu about sort of what you're offering in terms of, uh, uh, LASIK financing in your practices. Yeah, that's a, a great question. And oftentimes the first question the patients are asking when they walk in our door, I think it really depends um, it, whether or not you're in private practice or an academic institute, because I think there's different resources available the t- depending on the nature of your practice. So more common than not in a private practice, you'll see options such as companies like Care Credit is a really popular financing option or um, individuals that have flex spending accounts. Um, for myself and the practice that I'm in, it's an academic institute that's also a hospital base. And as you can imagine, um, there can we have a lot of legal challenges around um, getting contracts in place with companies such as Care Credit. So because we can completely appreciate the importance of financing and we understand the influence that has on the amount of money a patient can pay for self-paced services that are not covered by insurance. We have got, it has forced us to be incredibly creative on what we can offer patients so that they can afford to have a service such as LASIK and pay over time. So some of the things that we have done um, is create partnerships with credit unions around our practices, um, and particularly the ones that are on campus that service our employees, our faculty members, med students, and such, and offer financing through personal health care loans that are either um, no interest if it's paid back in a short period of time or very low interest if it's paid back over a longer period of time. The other thing we've done is work with our institution to offer internal financing and capitalize on the fact that they offer financing for patients to display hardships that have high deductibles and getting the institution to understand that there's a really high demand and taking that exact same platform and allowing patients to capitalize on self-pay services by also paying over an extended period of time. And particularly when you think of the nature of our business in a hospital, these are patients that have been with us for 10, 15, 20 years, and they're um, captivated in our system because they're getting their oncology services or their primary care services. So why not extend that benefit to them? So I think um, in summary, it's really important to understand the nature of your practice and the resources that are available with the type of practice that you have and to understand the community that you're serving and the type of benefits that they have available to them, such as, like I said, flex spending accounts is a really big one for us. What do you think, Dr. McDonald? What's been successful in your practice in terms of financing? I have to say that we've had um, enormous good luck with care credit, but I do think it's important for the surgical coordinator, and this may sound like a small point, but the surgical coordinator, the surgical booker has to say, almost all our patients use financing. Almost all our patients use care credit. That way the patient doesn't feel embarrassed to say, I need financing. They can say, oh, listen, I'll write you a check. But if you say virtually everybody does it this way, that makes it so much easier for them to say they need financing. And I just wanted to touch on something that was mentioned earlier. 
because there's so many people are working from home. So the half of America that's working from home, they've saved money. They're, they're not eating out. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to travel. Uh, no dry cleaning bills, no parking, no Long Island Railroad tickets, you know, and they, but they also have more time. Most of us are like a pet gerbil in our exercise wheel, but now all of a sudden there's time to contemplate, how can I improve myself? So uh, that's why Peloton sales have gone through the roof. That's why our business has taken off. Um, I understand uh, I've, I've talked to plastic surgeons who say there are more plastic procedures being done now because people don't like the way they look on Zoom, amazingly. So, but it, usually, you know, we're just breathless running from one thing to the next and, and the pandemic has given people time to stop and think and improve themselves. Yeah, I, lo- I love what you said about, um, you know, making patients feel comfortable. So I, I, I routinely tell patients that, you know, uh, I give them whatever the top line cost is of LASIK. I, I have no problem just sharing that. That's what they want to know. But I very quickly say, but, you know, monthly at zero interest financing, it costs this much, which is kind of like the price of a cable or Wi-Fi bill. I immediately related to something mundane in their life they're already paying for. That kind of shows the value. And I absolutely mention, and most of my patients do it just like that. And they say, well, I can write a check. And I say, well, even if you can, at zero interest, it's kind of nice just to kind of pay for it monthly. You can just leave your money in savings. And almost all of them end up doing that because they were going to do it anyway. So I think you're exactly right. Dr. Zhu, can you talk about financing in your practice? Any pearls that you want to share uh, or any companies that you're using that's been successful? Yeah, just like Dr. McDonald said, we rely really heavily on care credit at my practice. We also use quite a bit of Alfion. Uh, what I think is quite interesting is actually how it will differ depending on the patient population that you're serving. So where I practice, I serve a large Latino population, but also a large Asian population. And it's interesting that the Latinos seem to much prefer financing, but my Asian patients, they like to pay cash and get that extra cash discount up front. So it's just interesting to see how different cultures think. And it's nice to be able to provide all the different options to them so the patient can decide what's best for them. You know, I think the other the other sort of different thing that, that that's emerged and has really taken ophthalmology by storm is this sort of virtual world that we live in, um, the whole Zoom and telemedicine world that, that we're also comfortable with now, uh, which seemed very foreign uh, just you know what 13, 14 months ago. So, Amy, I'd like to hear um, what you're doing, sort of from an organizational uh, perspective about telemedicine. Um, are, are your practices using it for consultations? Is it being uh, sort of introduced in terms of uh, uh, LASIK for patients who are interested? Are, are doctors doing it for post-operative care? Um, give us sort of an overview of your health systems and, and, and where telemedicine fits in. Sure. Um, I'll have to say that the pandemic really caused us to put a pause on our um, reactionary way of um, not taking time to really solve some of the more fundamental problems in our practice. Um, so definitely gave us the luxury of time and it allowed us to fast forward and be um, five years ahead of where we anticipated we could be. So we were at a place where our employees 
did not necessarily have the benefit of coming into work for the non-urgent services, but they were still getting paid. And then we had our, our some of our cataract and refractive surgery surgeons going through the same thing, that they were only coming in for urgent services. So it was really a nice time to think about what issues have we had over an extended period of time as it relates to our self-paced services that we haven't had time to fix. And for us, it was the lack of time that we spent educating our patients um, and the lack of time that we spent educating our staff members to do really good counseling so that we can convert these consultations to actual surgery. So we had phases where we had our surgeons educate our staff members why they were at home virtually, and that was very successful. And then um, we wanted to find a way to stay connected with all these patients that we had to cancel for an extended period of time because we didn't want to lose them. And we wanted to remind them that um, they were still at the forefront of our minds. So we had our staff members, after they were educated, call all of our consultations that were previously canceled to just say, hey, we haven't forgotten about you. How's your family doing? By the way, I see that you're scheduled for this consultation. What kind of questions do you have? Do you understand the different types of refractive surgery that you have available to you. And if that technician felt like it was something they could convert, then that patient was extended a virtual consultation with one of our surgeons. And then they would have the virtual consultation with the servant, the surgeon, and we would forward to the surgeon all of the um, medical records that they we had available to us and just basic things like refractions, topographies, if we had those. So we could have an educated conversation with them over the phone. And they had this undisturbed time with this surgeon without the distractions of being in a very busy clinic. And they felt this intimate connection with them. So we kept a list of their names. And when we were ready, we brought them back in and they felt like they knew us. They felt appreciated that we didn't forget about them. And the conversion rate was a lot higher than um, our typical practice where it was like rapid fire, getting them in and out. Um, so that was a huge benefit. And it was something that we were able able to keep, and particularly because we service such a large area and we have a lot of surrounding states that that, um, that our community mem members live in. The second thing that it did in regards to post-op visits is that um, while we didn't normally offer post-op cares virtually, we do have instances where, in particularly for our PRK patients, um, they're calling the very next day no matter how much you educate them. And sometimes they just need that reassurance. So um, in those instances where maybe they had um, a lack of transportation because they couldn't drive themselves or they just lived very far away, it was really nice just right off the bat to say, hey, we have this virtual platform. Let me connect you with one of our lead technicians or one of our surgeons. And sometimes it was just that that reassurance they needed that what they were experiencing was normal. So it's not in place of a slit lamp exam, of course, but for us, it's like that white glove service that you could offer. And that's something that they remember and resonates with them and that they start to tell other people when they hear that they're also interested in that. So we allowed it allowed us to be very untraditional with the way that we offered virtual health. Wonderful, wonderful. And, and, and in this last little bit of time, you know, I, I'd like for Dr. McDonald and then Dr. Zhu to just mention how, how their work life has changed in the age of the virtual consult. Is that something that you're doing or uh, what, what is, what is it, how does it exist now in your practice? Oh, certainly I, I did some of those for sure uh, during the COVID lockdown, but uh, we still offer uh, virtual visits. Um, 
you know, we still pre and post-op, you know, if you have a LASIK or PRK patient get up close to the camera, you can actually see quite a lot. The quality of the cameras are excellent. And obviously if they're reporting that they're seeing well and they're out of pain. So yes, we, we have changed. We will let people do virtual post-op visits when all is well. Um, I think that's never going to leave our armamentarium and certainly um, outside of refractive for housebound patients, of course, you know, that will never leave our practice. But yes, we've been able to incorporate it successfully and it's been great for everybody. So I probably haven't relied as much on virtual consultations or telemedicine as I probably could have. Our practice is still a little bit old fashioned. We still do everything pretty much on paper. And we like seeing our patients in person as much as possible, and our patients prefer that as well. Um, overall, we have still downbooked our schedule and sort of staggered the appointment time so that we don't have an overcrowded waiting room. We also practice excellent hygiene and sterile precautions by wiping down before and after, spacing out the chairs in the waiting room, and double masking and everything. But I think for our patients, a lot of them like to be seen in person. And when we offered virtual consultations during the lockdown, we didn't get that many people interested. There's that face-to-face -face with a doctor that you can never quite replace. Um, but during the lockdown, I did try out for a bit uh, telemedicine, and I felt it was helpful for at least educating patients and getting a sense of what they might need. For example, you could probably tell if the patient needed LASIK versus cataract surgery uh, through just a virtual consultation. But beyond that, it's so hard to not have the exams in front of you, like topographies, and to not know exactly what they would qualify for. But at least we could take that time virtually to educate them on what they might find helpful and what the risks might be associated with that particular treatment. So it definitely took a lot of that time out of uh, the chair time that you would otherwise have to spend in person. But otherwise, we still continue to see most of our patients in person, and we always tell them that for surgery, we would have to see you in person anyways, just to make sure that all the scans are normal and all our in-person exams look normal and that your eyes are actually healthy enough to get this procedure done. And in terms of the post-op appointments, I still do all my post-ops checks in person. Um, if they were a week out from surgery, I definitely prefer to see them in person but beyond a week or a month, we would book them further into the future, sort of just depending on how the patient felt. Yeah, those are good points. And I think it's important to kind of, know, you know, to, to differentiate the difference between, you know, telemedicine versus teleregistration. And, it's, and I think it also, this is where hybrid visits also come in. So, you know, the way we're doing it in our practice, I, I'm just like Dr. Zhu, that I, I see all my patients uh, before surgery, as I imagine Dr. McDonald does as well. But really where we use telemedicine in uh, the virtual consult is with my counselor. So before the counselor just to be on, used to be on the telephone with these patients, they'd call in, and you know the 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 rate at which they'd actually come in to get their full workup was not near what it is now uh, because now she's meeting with them via a, a two-way audio visual platform, 
and neither of them are masked. There's something personal about being unmasked and actually seeing someone's face. And just seeing my counselor and talking to her has created a dramatic improvement in terms of the patients that will actually come in for that in-person consult with me so that they can get all of their diagnostics, so that I can look at their eye with a slit lamp and ultimately decide which refractive surgery procedures for them. So I think that virtual consultations uh, with counselors is something that is severely lacking and can really, really help us sustain this uptake in refractive surgery that we've seen. In terms of post-ops, we've been doing all of our uh, one-day post-ops virtually, which has been fantastic. We've been doing that for cataract surgery as well, routine uh, refractive and routine cataracts we've seen the one day uh, just uh, just uh, uh, over an audiovisual call uh, with the surgeon. And it's been wonderful. It's freed up so much time um, in our clinics. Uh, it's cleared up uh, office visits for paying customers that aren't in their global period. And it's been wonderful. The patients have enjoyed it thoroughly. So I think that you know, wrapping up, you know, we've had such a traumatic, such a such a dramatic uptick uh, in what we've been doing with LASIK and refractive surgery. And I think that in order to sort of sustain this, there there are many things that we need to be looking at. Things like making sure you're doing the proper uh, uh, financing, uh, making sure you're using the right words. Dr. McDonald's taught us so much that words matter, and and, and the actual words and phrases you use are important in, in, in that consult. And lastly, just thinking about new technologies like virtual consultation. Uh, to help sort of sustain the growth that we've had. So we appreciate you listening. I want to thank all of our panelists today, and uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you in the next episode.